Would you turn with me now to the portion we read a moment ago to John's Gospel, chapter 11 and verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. I am the resurrection and the life. In that simple text, there is a unique formula that is found only in John's Gospel. He has seven sayings, and they all are referred to as the I am sayings. Unique to John's Gospel, and they are introduced by the Lord himself to give different aspects of his teaching and of his ministry to them, to us. When he was there upon the earth, the thinking about the Messiah and about the Lord was mixed and muddled, confused, contradicted. There was so much round about him that was this way or that way. And so the Lord on one occasion asked his disciples, what are people saying about me? And that confusion and mixture was reflected in the answers that they gave. Some say that you're Isaiah. Some say you're one of the great prophets. Some say that you're John the Baptist. And then he turned the question and he put every one of them to the mark. And he put them on the mark by saying this. Yes, that's what others say, but who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? He made it very personal, probing, spiritual. Just as he does it now, underneath his gospel. Not what others say, what do you say? And so this formula, I am, was an opportunity in several different places to, for the Lord to open seven windows on his character and on his coming, to do amazing, wonderful things, to achieve salvation for sinners, and to bestow gifts upon those who believe in him. This gospel is freely available, but it is not cheap. It was achieved and obtained through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And in these seven sayings, he addresses the issues of life then and the issues of life now. People, we have it today, are asking us, what's the purpose of my life? Where can I get satisfaction today? Why am I here? These are the questions that Ecclesiastes asks. The man there, the preacher, he had all the resources of ruling at his disposal. And so he was conducting a whole series of experiments to answer these very questions way back in the book of Ecclesiastes. And he tried whatever was available, and time after time he came with the same conclusion, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. All of it is empty. 
chasing after the wind. It's like trying to nail smoke to the wall. It can't be done. It's a waste of much time and energy. And you don't get peace from it. So much promised, so little delivered. And into that vacuum, that spiritual vacuum, the Lord speaks with these seven sayings. We all know, some of them by heart, I am the bread of life. Simple. I ask the question, how many of us had toast this morning for breakfast? We all have bread. It's a basic staple diet of our life today. It's there, essential for our physical life. And the Lord is saying, yes, that's what keeps you going physically. What keeps us going spiritually? And the Lord is saying that he himself is so vital and necessary for us if we are to sustain our Christian life and living in the pressures of society then and now today. We need to constantly eat, draw from him to keep ourselves going in life today. And the same thing can be said about so many other of his sayings. We come to death just now. People might say, once you start talking about that, oh, you're too morbid, you're too depressing. And yet the psalmist tells us in Psalm 90, he says, well, okay, your life, it spans maybe three score years and ten, and if providence goes your way, you've got four score years. But even at the very best, it's all, it's all so brief. We need, the psalmist tells us, we need to apply our hearts to wisdom. To number our days and to be prepared for death when it comes. To use well the time we've got. So question again is, when did we last think of eternity? Have we prepared for it? There are things, many things that we neglect. That we just simply do not attend to. And one of them is brought before us in this passage this morning. The Lord says, I am the resurrection and the life. We're given vivid, encouraging pictures of who he is and what he's come to do. And following the risen Christ, far from robbing us of anything of life, quite the opposite. He bestows peace, gives satisfaction, a joy and a satisfaction we've never known anywhere else before. So, let's come into the passage and the events we have before us here. For the most part, I want us to think of this, but there are two other conclusions I want to bring in briefly at the end. <coughs> Because here we are told that Christ is the champion over death. We are introduced here the scene of sorrow and death. And we all know that in such a situation, emotions are strong. 
We're told that Lazarus was sick. He died. Plainly, there's need. But the Lord delays. He delays for two years. And it's very significant in verse 5 that the Lord quite deliberately tells us and brings this to our attention. Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. They were the object of the love and delight concern of the Lord. They brought the situation of Lazarus before him and the implication was that he should come to be their help. Why did the Lord delay then? <coughs> Why did the Lord delay for two days? He delayed because he wanted to highlight a very important factor operating in his life. He has come to do the will of his Father. And nothing else was more important than that. His agenda, his timetable, was not set, created or dictated by those around him, even by those who were loved by him. We told earlier on in John's Gospel, chapter 4, my meat, and again, it's a simple picture and image, image we can remember. What is it? We have a meal. It keeps us going. My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Later on in chapter 7 of John's Gospel, we have the disciples saying, let's go to the Feast of Tabernacles. The pressure was there on the Lord to go up. And he says to his disciples, no, you go. It's not yet my time. And again, bringing out this vital quality and factor that he has to operate not by the needs round about him or the desires of those with him. But it was constantly and always the agenda, timetable, plans and purposes of the Father who sent him is what he was wanting to achieve and overtake. Eventually he did go. But he went only making it clear of his time and of his will in doing so. And there's a lesson there for ourselves. Every Christian is loved in the same way as Mary, Martha, Lazarus. We can be in trouble and we can pray for help. And it doesn't come at the time or in the way we expect it. Why? The intervention of the Lord is not going to be coerced or brought about by any one of his dearest loved friends then or now. His way and his time is always the best. And we often see that only after the event has passed. And we can look back with reflection and see the perfection of the Lord's dealing with us as with them.
So here we have it then. We're surrounded by the atmosphere of death. And Christ brings teaching concerning his own ministry, which is appropriate and essential for the situation we are in. And he tells them quite plainly, a paradox. The person who believes in Jesus Christ will live even although he dies. What does that mean? The Lord is bringing out a vital spiritual teaching that physical death is not the important thing. The unbeliever traveling through life comes to the edge. The edge of his life and looks over the edge. Looks, trying as he will, to look into death itself and what is there in store for him, for her, for anyone. They look over the edge and they try to think beyond it and they shrink back because they don't see and they're not prepared for what they do see. That's the fear the non-Christian has. But not so the Christian. We pass through a door called death into the presence of our Lord and our God. A deeper, fuller fellowship with him. And it begins the moment we come to trust in Jesus Christ. We begin to experience from his hand in providences and in blessings things we've never known in our life before. Spiritual good coming to us. Are we prepared? Are we ready? We all of us have come to the edge sometime and we look over the edge. Are we ready? What's there for us? I want us simply to think of Christ as a champion because we have just passed Easter. There are great truths, comforts that are seen there for us. I want simply to take them to show indeed how he is that champion in two very simple ways. He has offered... He has offered an acceptable sacrifice. So let's unpack that for ourselves. Sin demands death. We know that. The consequences of our life here in this world play out in eternity where we will spend it with or without the Lord. The way we live, the decisions we make, all of us have consequences that follow us. No matter how we might cast ourselves, no matter how we might paint ourselves up, in the last analysis, when push comes to shove, we're all sinners. That is the reality of the ballgame. We often hear John 3.16 being quoted, God so loved the world that he gave his son. And so often we think 
at least we're led to believe sometimes that it's the number that matters there. The enormity of the scale and the size of the love of the Lord. No. John 3.16 does not tell us about the numbers of people. John 3.16 tells us about the type of people. What type of person did Christ come into the world to save? What about that person that shows his love in such an amazing scale? It's the type of person, a sinner. Somebody who's his enemy, against him. That's the kind of person the Lord has come to save. And that's the wonder of John 3.16. God so loved the world, the scale of sin in that place, in that world. And yet he sent his son into it to redeem. Sometimes, <clears throat> sometimes in a children's address, I take a bag of liquors all sorts. And all of the liquors all sorts, you take them out. Sometimes they've got wafers or, I don't know what they're called, but fondant icing, top and bottom, with a black strip in the middle. Different colours. Sometimes they're coconut on the outside, black strip in the middle. Sometimes it's a lump and there's all these sparkling lumps all over it. Sometimes it's just simply the black strip on its own. The common feature for all of them is that black strip in the middle. No matter how we paint ourselves up, that's one feature that's common to us all. We all are sinners. We've all got that dark black strip inside. Except for one. There is one liquor salt sort, totally different from all the rest. It's black on the outside, but you open it up, it's got a white center. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ, a pure, perfect person. But wrapped around him, all the sins of his people. And there is the wonder of John 3.16. He's come into the world to take the place of sinners. He's come to experience death on their behalf. And there is a paradox, we've spoken about it there, about dying, first, second death. There's a paradox here on the cross also. On the cross, there is the closest possible identification between Christ and his people. He has come as their stand-in. He's come as their representative. He is there identifying with them as close as possible. And at the very same time, he is so different for them. All sinners, he is not. There is a perfection in his being. There is a beauty in his character. He's come into the world, the Son of God, to take the sins of his people a perfect sacrifice. Yes. Nothing higher. Nothing better could be given by God but his son. 
Nothing more could be asked of the Son but that he give his life on the cross, which he did. All the faults, all the errors, all the sins in the books of heaven. Jesus Christ turns the page of every one of them with the name of his people on them. And he says, I'll deal with that. And I'll deal with that. And I'll deal with that. And that's what the Lord is doing on the cross of Calvary. Every one of the sins of every one of his people is put into that cup. And he drinks that cup to the very last drop. That's the scale of his work. And that's the beauty of the gospel which we offer to people today. For the troubled, for the concerned sinner. We point people to the cross and the enormity of what happened there, the transaction that took place there, the beauty and the appeal of it to the person who is in need. Yes, that's the gospel. But, but will God accept that sacrifice? Will God accept that sacrifice of Christ on my behalf? If he doesn't, what's the point? Are you sure that he will not seek sin at my hand on the day of judgment? Is my book clean? Is your book clean in the courts of heaven? Is there anything, is there something left that we've got to deal with? These are the questions that come to a concerned sinner sooner or later. And in the resurrection, we have every single one of these doubts and fears addressed. Every single one of them that the devil will try to exploit against you. Every single one of them. What was it the Lord heard? Right at the very beginning at baptism, the heavens were split. And the voice of heaven said, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. John 4 that we read, what was his meat and drink to come and do the will of his father? To finish the work that was given him to do. Remember what we said about Psalm 89 there. The people were rejoicing when they heard the bells going. And the priest was coming out knowing that the sacrifice was accepted. We look at the resurrection. And there we have God's imprimatur. There we have God's note of well-pleased in the work of his son. There we have the answer to the fears and the doubts that might be thrown about us, to us. There we have a rock on which we can build our hope. It's built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. So yes, he's offered that perfect sacrifice. <clears throat> when all the books are opened, when all the records are set out, then, yes, then there will be a time of rejoicing by the Christian. We might go through physical death. 
but spiritual death will not be our companion or our expectation. We have this hope. We have this Saviour. We have his blood as our argument. If you go back to 1 John chapter 2, 28, you have there the scene of the day of judgment. And it's told us there that on that day we will have confidence. That word confidence can be better translated. We have boldness. We will not be stuttering and stammering in the greatness of where we gather. Sometimes when, when, you, when, you're, when you're before a great audience of people, when, when you're meeting somebody for the first time, some great character, some, you're, you're lost for words. That will not happen on the day of judgment. We will not be stuttering and stammering. We will not be lost for what to say. We will have a boldness to speak and to say plainly and clearly that Christ is my hope, my saviour. And to do so with the assurance that God is well pleased with the things and arguments we deploy and the work accepted, achieved by Christ on the cross. He drinks of that cup with the name of every believer on it so that we never have to touch it for ourselves. Nothing is left at our hand to deal with. So yes, that's the first champion over death. Accepted sacrifice. But there's something else I want to say. Not only does he offer an accepted sacrifice, we have here also the assurance of resurrection. <clears throat> first Corinthians 15 and 23 speaks about the first fruits. And you go through the vineyard and you pick a grape. Out in the field you get a handful of grain. Pick a tatty out of the ground. What are you doing? You're starting the process of harvesting. And what you're saying is that what has happened to that one potato is going to happen to all the others. They are going to be harvested. And that's what the Lord is saying. Every single one of his people will walk the same path and experience the same thing as he has. He is the assurance of our resurrection. Walking in his footprints. There are times now, yes, there are times now when we experience the sweetness and the closeness of the Lord. His word comes home to us in a very special way. We're strengthened by it. We're able to cope problems that come our way. We're brought face to face with glorious spiritual realities. But all of these things, precious and enormous as they might be to us now, they're only a small sample and foretaste of what is yet to be. We are crucified with the Lord, we're risen with the Lord, and we will one day be with the Lord. And he presents it in simple, devastating logic. Because I live, 
you will live also. We are united with him. And as he rose the first fruits, so there is the assurance that that experience will be for every one of his believing people also. We read at funeral service, John 14, I go to prepare a place where you, where I am, there you may be also. How is it achieved? How does that come about? Simply by that resurrection. And we have a sample taste, as I said there, of these things that will come in their fullness later on. Martha here had a problem, a little fault. Whatever she says here, she's always fixing it a way off in the future. I know that there shall be a resurrection. I know that that's what's going to happen. I know, and that's what she keeps saying. But we've got to hear what the Lord has said here. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. There is the moment we come to believe and trust in the Lord. There is there and then the beginning of a new life in him to be enjoyed as we never enjoyed life before. The sting of death has been removed and grave has been defeated. And that is the essence of the Easter message, an accepted sacrifice, an assured resurrection. The glory of that thrills and excites every Christian believer, the prospect of Emmanuel's land. So, he's the champion over death and over sin. But I said there were two other things I wanted to mention, and I want to do them very, very briefly before we close. Not only is he the champion, but I want also for us to listen in verse 27 to the confession that Martha makes. The only way that this fear of death that we've been highlighting and we know round about is the only way in which that fear can be banished and to be dealt with is by dealing with the foundation on which it stands. We're afraid because we've done wrong. And the only way in which that wrong can be dealt with is through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And here is Martha with a confession. She says, I know. I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. And that word, I, is emphasized. Whatever else others might believe, and we said at the beginning that the Lord did that with the disciples. What do other people say about me? Here is Martha adopting the same tactic. Whatever other people might say in the marketplace, in the shops, down the street, wherever they go, wherever we go, whatever they might say, that's not for me. This is what she says. I believe. In Jesus Christ, the word is Messiah, the one promised from the Old Testament to be the saviour of his people. And who is that saviour? He is the son of God who's come into this world. Come into this world as the deliverer. To do the will of his father who sent him. And to obtain salvation for his people. 
That's the simple confession that she makes. And we've got to take our, wife, our life beside that. And we've got to judge what is our confession against hers. Can we say it? I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, who's come into the world to save sinners. The confession she made. The champion over death. One last thought before we close. The resurrection changes people. I want you to fall into the company of two people who are walking one Sabbath day on the road to Emmaus. <clears throat> and their chins were bumping along the bottom. They were downhearted. They couldn't make sense of what's happened. They had great and high hopes and expectations, but none of them were realised as they felt they should be realised. They were there down. And as they walked and talked, somebody came into their company. And as they walked along the road, this person opened the Bible and highlighted all the passages. The best Bible study ever opened the Bible to highlight the places that spoke about the Messiah. And he was the Messiah. And this is what he's come to do. And they were filled with joy and thrilled. And we're told in Luke 24, 31 and 32 that they went back home to the disciples. And they were spilling it out. We've met with him and he's alive. He changes people. They were filled with joy because they had met the risen Christ. Or go to the company of Paul. He was a missionary. He was going out everywhere preaching and building up the church of Jesus Christ. And he faced opposition on a huge, intense, prolonged scale. Beaten up. Left in a boat. Almost lost at sea. So much extremity came into his life. But he kept going. Why? Because he had met and has been persuaded that Christ was risen. That he had commissioned him to do a work. He was his constant companion as he went about that work. No matter what it took and what it meant and where it took him. He was always in the throes. But he was never alone as he went. It changes people. The fact that Jesus Christ is alive. Today, we so often have the cross represented to us. And the one thing we've got to constantly remind ourselves and tell to others. Look at that cross. And that cross must be empty. That cross must be empty. Because that tomb is empty. Because that Savior is alive. Today. Today we have this gospel set before us with a great assurance and great comfort. He brings life in full measure. 
and in all of its aspects to believers. And it starts right now when we believe and trust in him. Do you know him as Martha did? Do you have that calm peace at the prospect of death and meeting him? What is it that you rest your hope on? Is it able to carry the weight of your soul for eternity? Or will you be let down at the last moment? We can put our full weight for time and for eternity. Not on anything we've done, but on Christ's work upon the cross. I want to close simply by taking you to Ephesians chapter 1 and first few verses. And there we have an insight into the transactions that took place within the Trinity. And there in the Trinity there was devised a way of salvation. And that way of salvation was designated to Christ and given to him to achieve and to accomplish. That's what we have. We've mentioned it already. I've been, I'm come to do the will of him who sent me and to finish that work. And that's exactly what has happened in the resurrection. The work is finished. You've got great projects around about us constantly. Building projects, schemes, huge amounts of money involved. Teams of architects, teams of constructors. So many people at work in building this up. And at the very end, when it's all done, the architect, the constructor, they've got to sign it off. It's finished. It's done. And the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is God signing off on the work, salvation, devised in the councils of the Trinity, achieved by Jesus Christ on the cross and applied to his people through the work of the Holy Spirit. And push comes to shove today. Is that saviour your saviour? Is that gospel your hope? Is he your constant companion now? And your boast at the end? Let us pray. Our Lord, our gracious God, once again we bless thy name for the riches of this gospel in our hand and in our hearing. And we pray, Lord, that it would enter into our hearts and our heads. And we pray, Lord, that it might be exhibited in our life and our living. And we ask, Lord, that thou would be our constant companion in all of the steps we take from this day forward. Be with us at the end and be there waiting for us on the other side. And we pray, Lord, that we might be delighted, that we might be thrilled, that we might be constantly filled with joy at the wonder of the gospel of grace, that thou should think of the likes of us. Bless us, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Amen. Amen.
close this morning by singing in Psalm 16. <clears throat> Psalm 16 at verse 7. <clears throat> I bless the Lord because he doth by counsel me conduct. And in the seasons of the night my reins do me instruct. <clears throat> Before me still the Lord I set, sith it is so that he doth ever stand at my right hand, I shall not move be. Because of this my heart is glad and joy shall be expressed. Even by my glory and my flesh and confidence shall rest. Because my soul engraved with well shall not be left by thee. Nor wilt thou give thine holy one corruption to see. Thou wilt me show the path of life of joys that is full store before thy face. At thy right hand are pleasures evermore. 16, 7 through to the end. I bless the Lord. <clears throat> I bless the Lord because he does my
and now may grace, mercy, and peace from God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit rest upon and abide with you all. Amen. Amen. Amen.